1: State legislatures are on the front lines of so many of the important issues facing our country, from democracy to climate to a woman's right to choose. So to get a sense of what to expect in this year's legislative sessions across the country, we recently partnered with the State Democracy Action Fund to convene four fantastic leaders in positions of legislative leadership from very different states across the country. Alongside SDAF Interim Executive Director Kate Stoner, I had the privilege of leading a super informative conversation with Connecticut Senate President Bob Duff, Pennsylvania Speaker of the House Joanna McClinton, Tennessee Majority Leader Ramesh Akbari, and Florida House Minority Leader Frances Driscoll. We talked about their legislative priorities, what it looks like if you're in the majority versus the minority, spoiler alert, better to be in the majority, and how things will likely play out in their states with the pivotal 2024 election in the backdrop. We hope you enjoy our 2024 legislative preview. So happy to have all four of you here. And I think I will just start maybe with you, Bob, and then we'll just go down the line. Love with a real open-ended question, which is, you know, from your vantage point, and it'll be, I think, very different depending on which kind of state you're in, but from your vantage point, what are your priorities? What are you hoping to accomplish this year? What are you either most excited about or most worried about, maybe depending on what kind of state you're sitting in? But Bob, I'll turn it to you to
2: start. Well, thank you. And thanks, Debbie. And thanks, Kate, and everybody. I'm so honored to be here with my fellow New Deal leaders. It's always a pleasure and privilege to spend some time with some of the greatest minds in the country and who really do a lot of hard work on the ground in our communities, in our states, to pass good progressive legislation that actually helps people and that people can feel in their community. So for us here in Connecticut, I'd say there's a number of different priorities we have to continue to focus on. One is you know We're in a very good spot in our budget and making sure that our budget is, is balanced. But doing that and keeping our fiscal house in order has actually provided us with a lot of spending room, about $650 million based on some of the decisions we made many years ago, which has allowed us to make investments in areas that are really, really high priority. And you to grow jobs. You know, lots of people moving in the state of Connecticut for many reasons. And so that, that is good, but it also presents some challenges that we also need to work on. Some of that is housing. The House Majority Leader and I have been really, really focused on building more housing and especially more affordable housing in the state of Connecticut. We have probably over 120,000 units of housing that needs to be built. We have over 100,000 jobs that need to be filled. And as people come in here from New York and New Jersey and Massachusetts and even folks from Florida need to make sure that we're building. Other states like Florida are building quite a bit, and we need to make sure that we're matching that. We're also very, very focused on health care. And ensuring that we continue to make Connecticut a place where a woman can make her own decision on her, on her health care and that we're not standing in the way of that. We're also very, very focused on ensuring that we're looking at consumer protection issues. There's a lot of issues right now that the federal government is abdicating on. And that we're continuing to focus on, such as data privacy, such as artificial intelligence and other types of issues of broadband and working to make sure that we're focused on those issues with cable consumers and other types of things. We're going to continue to stay focused on our infrastructure. Thankfully, because of the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act that we are going to invest those funds into climate change, into better transportation networks, into resiliency, All different ways that we can make our state more walkable, bikeable, more pedestrian-friendly, and do it in a way that grows our economy and grows jobs.
1: Thanks so much, Leader Duff, and let me turn the same question over to you, Leader Driscoll, in Florida. I know Florida is a lot different than Connecticut in terms of probably of what you're going to be able to push through and what you're going to have to be fighting against. So tell us a little bit about what's on your mind as you head into this session in Florida.
3: Well, hi Debbie, thank you so much for having me today, and you're still very polite. You're like you know. The answers may depend on what state you're coming from. And I'm like, me, she's talking about me. Although I'm sure Ramesh probably has, Senator Akbari probably has some uh, comments as well. But so in Florida, you know, we got to talk about this a little bit at the conference, the New Deal conference in November. The Florida House Democrats are pushing our freedom to be agenda. We say that every Floridian deserves the freedom to be healthy, prosperous, and safe. And so we try to center on policies that meet people where they're at. Yes, we have to push back against the bad culture war bills, the book bans, you know, just, you know, all the really important stuff that seeks to divide us and that doesn't really help anybody live a healthier life. Uh, But at the same time, we're trying to put forward policies that can really improve the lives of people. So if I could just hit on a, a few of those, just kind of walk you through our agenda my leadership team each carries a bill or two. I have two. The first is on property insurance creating greater transparency in the property insurance market. This really isn't a Republican or Democratic bill. I think it is a good bill that calls for the insurance regulator to be elected again, which is something we used to have in Florida, so that he or she can be accountable to the people. It creates a commission to have oversight over the property insurance market and make recommendations to the legislature, because part of what's been happening is now that that position is no longer elected, it seems like there's a, a really cozy relationship, perhaps between our insurance regulator and the market, rather than focusing on, or the industry, rather than having solutions that focus more on what the people need and rate relief and, you know, just a lot more transparency is needed there. So we've got that very good bill. We have another on affordable housing. The state of Florida has moved towards more and more preemption bills where local governments are not able to make the decisions that they need for that particular housing market to try to provide some rent relief and you know price pressure or relieve some of the price pressure that residents are feeling. So our bill says no rather than tell local governments what to do let's actually work with them more. Let's try to understand these local solutions, let's empower local solutions. Let's work on some land banking together so that we can increase the inventory of affordable housing. So that's a really great bill that our caucus has. We're pushing for Medicaid expansion. What's interesting is that based on our recent polling and some efforts to try to get Medicaid on uh, the ballot, not necessarily for 2024, but in future years, this is something that we're starting to see the community latch onto as well. We've even gotten at least one Republican to reach across the aisle and say that he thinks that Medicaid expansion would be a good thing. So we're continuing to try to work that in a bipartisan way, although we do suffer no illusions that it is an uphill battle. We also have a bill on common sense gun ownership. You can imagine that Florida is one of those states where debates over gun rights can be very heated. We've suffered some tragedies as have so many places in this nation due to gun violence and mass shootings. So this is a bill being carried by another new dealer, Representative Christine Hunchowski, who's the whip in our caucus. And it does not take away a gun from a single lawful gun owner, but it does promote common sense gun ownership and focuses on policies that everyone can agree with, like universal background checks. So these are the types of priorities that we're working on pushing as a caucus, trying to take some of the partisan rancor out of the conversation and just focus on good economic policies for Floridians. There is a little bit of good news out of Florida. I should tell you, we had a special election last week where we elected Representative Tom Keene to a district in Orange and Osceola County. So we were able to grow our ranks from 35 to 36. We're one step closer to getting out of the supermajority, a superminority situation, which I think will also give us an opportunity to have our legislative priorities have more meaning.
1: Thank you so much, Leah Driscoll. And I'm excited to have Kate follow up with you after we hear from everybody just a little bit with some follow-up questions, because there's a lot of really great stuff in there. I'm excited to hear about trying to partner with local governments. I'm so concerned by this trend with states not accepting federal funds kind of by just with, you know, to make a point, you know, which is going to do nothing but hurt the people of their state. So I'm excited to hear you talking about some of that things like Medicare expansion. So thank you for that, Medicaid expansion. Let me turn it over to Ramesh Akbari, who is in another one of those states that sometimes is, I think, probably going to be playing a lot of defense this year. Year who's done some work the state in not accepting federal funds Ramesh if you can hop on video love to hear from you a little bit about what you're seeing in Tennessee this year
4: certainly I think like Leader Driscoll we certainly are going to be playing a lot of defense I actually got asked I was on a panel for an education group and they said well what education policies are you going to push and I said you know. It's very difficult for me to think about offense when I have to think about defense. Some of the big things that we, of course, are going to be pushing for last year, we had a you know horrific shooting at a private school in Nashville. We have a coalition of bipartisan leaders and community folks and business owners that really are trying to push back against Tennessee being an open carry state against, you know, My first or second year in the legislature, the Castle Doctrine was extended, and you can have your weapon in your vehicle. There's no requirement that you safely store it. We've seen thousands of more guns on the street because of this. Crimes that might have been committed without a gun are now being committed with a gun. So we have legislation filed for all of that. The key is, of course, getting it through the legislature. Myself and Leader Karen Camper from the House, we were invited to an event at the White House that focused on gun safety. And so we filed legislation to create a statewide Office of Gun Violence Prevention, similar to the federal program that President Biden announced in September. Getting some good feedback on that. So hopefully we can push that through. Of course, with education, a lot of this, like I said, is going to be defense. We have legislation that's already been filed to ban people from our schools from flying any flag with the American flag or the prisoner of war flag. Obviously, trying to target rainbow flags and things like that. Of course, we'll be pushing back against any possibility of rejecting federal funds. This past summer and fall, there was an exploratory committee, which I was the only Democrat from the Senate as minority leader, and we had a member from the House on the committee. That explored the possibility of rejecting federal education funding, which would be $2 billion for the state of Tennessee. It made no sense. It was something that was being led by our speaker and the House. And actually, whenever we have a joint committee, we always release a joint report. The Senate released a separate report this year, which was kind of fascinating. We said, we indicated, you know, no other state has done this. There are so many unknowns. It's not something that we think would be in the best interest of the state. It's something worth exploring, which I think is a safe political answer. But the House released a different report that actually some of the things we speculated about they took as true, and they made actual recommendations. One that was particularly silly was trying to eliminate food waste, So, which they talked about extensively in the committee. So basically children who are not eating all of their free and reduced lunch, trying to eliminate them from wasting that so that you can use that to fund other programs. I mean, it's just you think you reach the bottom, and then they're like, nope, we can go a little further. So it's an interesting environment, right? Like in Tennessee, for the first time in like 14 years, we will not have a surplus. We had flat growth. We anticipate that'll go up about 5% next year. But, you know, dealing with a party that has never had to really not have this, you know, multi-billion dollar surplus they can do things with. Uh, So that'll be interesting to see as well. Of course, our governor is trying to extend vouchers statewide. Right now it's in Memphis and Nashville. That was a pilot program. It's been about a year and a half. Program is not doing as well as as I think they would have hoped. And the requirements around extending this program statewide, basically, I could open a school tomorrow, put, you know, five desks in there because there's no sort of requirement for standardized testing or any sort of requirement for the type of licensing that other schools have. So we'll see. I think on a positive end, our governor has proposed legislation around music, the music industry and AI, which is really important given Nashville and Memphis from country music to hip-hop, trying to make sure that artists are protected. So, you know, it's going to be an interesting session. Allegedly adjourned on April the 11th. Unlike other states, we just adjourn when we adjourn. So we'll see what happens. But the main things are healthcare, education, gun safety. We have legislation to expand Medicaid. We are one of the few states like Florida that has not done that, literally leaving billions of dollars on the table while we're the number one state for medical debt. Uh, So I have a piece of legislation that will cap medical debt, interest rates at 3%. So we'll see. But, you know, we just keep fighting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot of great stuff. It's interesting to already hear some of the themes coming out of the education vouchers, some of the common sense gun reform and some of this social safety net and continuing to you know, come out of COVID and rebuild our economy in a way that's sustainable. So it's great to hear that. Thank you so much, Senator. And I know that we've, I think, been joined now by Speaker Clinton from Pennsylvania. So excited to have you with us, New Deal leader. Love to hear, I think you joined us a little late. So just opening up with just a real open-ended question about kind of what are your priorities for the coming year? We'd love to hear from you.
5: Absolutely. Good afternoon, everyone. It's awesome to be here with the New Deal family. Thank you once again for this convening to see what's happening all across our nation as we are in the state capitals, on the front line, protecting the ballot, defending reproductive justice. And in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, it's not very different from some of the things that have been said. We are carrying into 2024 the priorities that I call unfinished business that's left from 2023. The first and most important thing that we are working on as a caucus in the state house in Pennsylvania is our education. We have been tackling and blocking a controversial voucher program from last year's budget, and it certainly is not going away with our upcoming budget cycle. Our budget deadline is June the 30th. The interesting thing is our appellate court, the Commonwealth Court, made a decision after almost a 10-year lawsuit where one of my constituents, I serve both Philly and Delaware County, the neighboring suburb, William Penn School District in Delaware County, was the lead plaintiff. I said, look, The state legislature is not doing its job. They're not giving local municipal school districts enough state funding to be able to fairly fund our classrooms as a result we have districts where some children have and districts where many children do not have we have's and have nots and unfortunately many of the districts that have children that are not getting the resources are often children in communities of color are often english language learners are often those who are getting the, the free and reduced to lunch are often folks who are here, you know, with their parents wanting to do the best. And so many are moving around different parts of Pennsylvania trying to get the best public education. So the first and foremost thing in our agenda for 2024 is fairly funding the school. Our governor convened the Basic Education Funding Commission after the lawsuit. The decision came February last year. And now the Basic Education Funding Commission just finished their work, where they said that we've got to find and see, spend about $5 billion to finally have a fair funding system so that all children in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania are able to access that great education to get them the opportunities that they want as they grow into their lives here. The second thing, in addition to making better schools in our areas, we want to have better jobs, better jobs, better opportunities, drawing industry, creating jobs. We were able to just pass at the end of last year and earned income tax credit for people who are paying for childcare. That is one of the biggest bills my friends, constituents, and others have every month in some places more than housing. So that's something we were able to pass, but we have other things we need to do. Pennsylvania is one of the states that is stuck. Our minimum wage is stuck at the federal level. And we know every state around us, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, and then the Republican controlled states of Ohio and West Virginia, they all have a higher minimum wage than we do. So we sent a proposal last spring. We're hoping that the Senate will take it up this year. That will be very important. One of the things we were able to start was changing the way our businesses are taxed so that we can draw more businesses to put their roots down and grow in Pennsylvania. So we were able to get that passed, but we have more to do in that regard to make it an attractive place for economic opportunity. And then the other thing we're talking about as a priority is having better communities. What does that mean? First of all, it's safety. It's making sure that there is safety in schools and safety in communities where we have to continuously fight the surge of gun violence. 2020 was the only year in our nation during the shutdown because of the pandemic pandemic where there were no mass shootings. That means that we in state capitals have the responsibility to do everything possible to keep what would be weapons of war out of the average person's hand. The House sent two bills over to the Senate last year that were open. They will send back to us so we can get to the governor's desk. One is extreme risk protection. So if anybody we know, encounter, live with, a neighbor, a friend, roommate is having some sort of challenge, that they can get evaluated and have an independent evaluation and temporarily have any arms in their area taken away, any guns, any firearms. Um, There was a terrible incident that happened in rural Pennsylvania last June, Juniata County, where our state troopers came in ambush uh, from a gentleman that had had a breakdown. And had lawfully guns that he owned and purchased. And then there was a city, excuse me, an incident in the city, one block outside my district. So still the very same community in Southwest Philly, where for two nights, a gentleman went on a rampage and committed a massacre right before the 4th of July holiday. So if we can get extreme risk protection out of the Senate to the governor's desk, that is a priority because it will save lives. The other one is the gun show loophole where they're not doing background checks for long armed guns. That will also be something that has passed in a lot of states that will help us. So we have a few other things that we consider to be a part of making our communities better. We've got the safety and security grant for nonprofits and places of faith. Sadly, the Tree of Life massacre, which was the largest anti-Semitic attack in the United States, occurred in Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania. So we've been giving grants to nonprofits to be able to have security at places of faith, especially where they've been very vulnerable over the last few years. But we have more to do. We passed the Fairness Act out of the House, and we're waiting for the Senate to send that back so that you can no longer legally discriminate against someone because of how they show up in this world or who they love, or how they identify. Uh, we also have sent over the Crown Act in a very strong bipartisan way. So no matter how our hair grows out of our head or how we choose to style it, we won't face any discrimination or lose any job opportunities. And then finally, you know, it's 2024. We want to continue to defend democracy. We want to make sure that we are dispelling, any conspiracy theories, any big lies, and making sure that everybody has faith in their right to lift up their voice and participate in the elections this year.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Speaker, for that fantastic overview. Kate, let me turn it over to you to ask a
6: question. Yes, thank you so much, Debbie, and thank you, leaders. It was wonderful to hear the priorities, and as Debbie said, to see the trends coming out of all your states on these issue areas that really impact your constituents' day-to-day lives, from education, jobs, the economy, common sense, gun safety. So thank you so much for all the work that you're doing on that. And as you kind of think about your priorities, we'll move on to the next question. So, of course, 2020 is an election year, and both parties feel that there is so much riding on the results this November. How does that play into what you prioritize and what you can accomplish this session? Or does it play into how you prioritize legislation and what you think can be accomplished this session? And also, do you think that there are any bipartisan wins that are possible? I know, Leader Driscoll, you started to talk about some bipartisan legislation during your portion. So if I want to start with you, that would be great.
3: Thanks so much for the question, Kate. And I think if I understood the first part of it, it's like, how do our agendas play into 2024? Was that part of it?
6: Yes. Does the the fact that there's an election year impact what is prioritized and what you think can be done?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll tell you, because we're learning fresh from the lessons of the special election that we had last week, as we were knocking the doors. There were only two things that people wanted to talk about. The first is protecting a woman's freedom to choose in abortion access. Florida has some of the most restrictive laws in the nation. We have a 15-week ban that is in place, and then the Supreme Court is considering that ban, and depending on how they rule on it, It's possible that 30 days after that decision, a six-week ban would go into effect, right? Like, Like making it absolutely one of the most draconian in the country. So people wanted to talk about that. I didn't talk about my priority bills in my individual capacity as a legislator, but one of the bills that I have protects a woman's right to an abortion up to the point that it is still legal in Florida. And if you interfere with that, it would impose civil penalties. So I absolutely crafted my own personal legislative agenda to match what the people are talking about. Then the other thing that they talk about on the doors is property insurance and just generally the lack of housing affordability. And so you hear that reflected in my caucus platform because people want to know that there are elected officials fighting for them in Tallahassee to provide direct rate relief, to provide greater transparency, and to focus on this issue of helping them attain the American dream. So I think it's going to have great significant impact in 2024. I think when you overlay what's happening in my state, and then also the things that the Biden administration is talking about in terms of protecting women's right to choose, I think if we talk about these issues that matter to the people the most, We can win. We just have to educate them and equip them to know who is actually fighting for them. So that's where I think it matters. In terms of whether or not we'll have any bipartisan wins in the state legislature, absolutely. We have some every year. Every now and again, we actually get what are known as extensions of Medicaid coverage. The Republicans won't let us call it expansions, but that's really what it is, okay? We expanded eligibility for families to get kid care to keep kids covered under Medicaid. A couple years before that, we expanded maternal health benefits under Medicaid to make sure that new moms have those sort of benefits, at least 12 months postpartum, which is beautiful and wonderful. I'm sure we will have more of those victories. I think in Florida, though, in order to get the types of wins that we want, that are like the big transformative policies, we just have to pick up more seats.
6: That makes sense. And thank you for sharing that. Very helpful. Speaker McClinton, we can turn to you. I know you also spoke a little bit about bipartisan votes that have happened in the last session that you're bringing forward. And we'd love to hear how you think you know, the election, especially in Pennsylvania, being such a key state for all levels of the ballot, is going to factor into your session.
5: So, a lot of the good pieces of legislation that the Senate has held up thus far has been complete political maneuvering. In our session, we are a body in the House of 203, and we have a one seat majority. Uh, It's 102 to 101. And right now, there's the sixth special election since last year, uh, about to happen February 13th. So, we're currently tied 101, 101, and the special election will happen in just a few weeks here to determine. Democrats remaining in control, me remaining as the speaker. So that being said, a lot of it is political maneuvering, but the good news is that we have been able to do some bipartisan wins, even though it's not as many as I would have liked to do this far. We've been able to work with the administration, Governor Josh Shapiro, to have automatic voter registration for everybody that goes down to get their ID or their license. That is very large. It's expanding the electorate. It will start to dispel the conspiracy theories. Many people don't know that Pennsylvania was a major breeding ground. We led the nation, sadly, in the number of people who were arrested on the deadly insurrection attack on the 6th of January. So we have to do a lot of dispelling those myths and those conspiracy theories as they led to such horror in our country. And we have to make sure people realize that we have not had any election interference.
6: That's great. And wonderful to hear about AVR. You know, I think that the amazing legislation that you all have been able to pass forward in all of your states to expand access to the ballot box is incredible. So thank you for that. Leader Duff, if you would like to talk about how the election might be impacting your session
2: in Connecticut. You know, this year in 2024, democracy is on the ballot, and we can talk a lot about all these issues that are really important. And I'm I'm so excited to hear from my colleagues around the country who've been on this call today about all the different things that they're doing to help uh, the people in their state. But we know that places like Pennsylvania and Florida, especially those two, Connecticut and Tennessee are are a little different in our camps here. Pennsylvania and Florida are states where we have to make sure that we get the vote out. and We have to make sure that we're saving our democracy. There's nothing more important this year than ensuring that we are out there and that we are telling people about why this election is so important. We cannot fix issues like our infrastructure. We cannot continue to grow jobs. We cannot continue to protect a woman's right to choose. We cannot continue to debate good housing policy and ensuring that people have a roof over their heads if we do not have a functioning democracy. And while the states have been good laboratories for that, we have got to make sure that we have the people in Congress as well. Our democracy works, it can work. We just need the people in there to get it to work. And we look at the first two years of Joe Biden and what he has done, with with the Democratic Congress, and we can see plain and simple what a function in Congress looks like, unlike what we're seeing right now. So democracy is on the ballot this year, and we have to make sure that not only we talk about what we're doing in the state legislatures, but why it is so important uh, all around this country to elect somebody who is pro-democracy
6: I cannot agree more. There is so much at stake with this and just protecting our institutions is is the forefront. So thank you for being on the front lines of that. And Leader Afbari, I would love to hear from you the same question, but also to add a little bit more, as you are our representative from a red state, from a Republican majority, to hear a little bit more about what you're also concerned about and what issues you think you're going to have to fight against.
4: Yes, definitely. Republican super majority. So (laughs) I will say this, you know, everything that we do, there are only six members of my caucus. So everything that we do is bipartisan. And like Leader Duff said, you know, like 95 percent of the things that are presented to us that we agree on, right? Maybe in Tennessee, 90 percent. But it's that 5 to 10% that really is super egregious. It's just the type of stuff that attacks people for who they are, who they love, what they want to learn, how they want to live their lives. And so we are always pushing back against that. I anticipate, and especially in an election year, and more so I'm thinking on a local level, as Tennessee is really not a player on a federal level in the presidential election. Usually we only really have input in the primaries, and we don't have one this year on the Democratic side. But really looking at an overcorrecting of crime issues in Memphis in particular, a lot of my colleagues across the aisle believe they have a solution for crime in our city. We're looking at some things like automatic transfer of juveniles to adult court if they steal a gun out of a vehicle or really trying to continue to push truth and sentencing, which we know as a failed policy from the 90s It is expensive and does not decrease those who you know participate in crimes. Also looking at we just had an action. I'm I'm gonna meet with the commissioner of elections today, director of elections today, just released a statement saying that an ex-offender has to get their gun rights restored before they can get their voting rights restored, which to me is so nonsensical that I just have to hear him tell me that in person. So I think also Tennessee is one of the only states where if you owe back child support and you're an ex-offender your voting rights cannot be restored until you've paid all of that back. And so they're going to continue to push against that type of policy. We have some of the, so Leader Driscoll said, you know, some of the strongest, the most archaic, draconian abortion policies. Well, we have that. I mean, we have a, a very small exception state. Doctors are extremely uncomfortable. They passed something last year that really didn't do anything. We have a Republican member of the Senate who's a physician who is kind of pushing for something with more exceptions. So hoping we can lean and support that uh, because quite frankly, too many women in Tennessee are facing, you know, they'll have to go to another state. And it's not even just because they're electing to have an abortion. It's because it's medically necessary. And that to me is unthinkable that we would live in that environment as women in 2024. I think- as far as also pushing back, like I already said, kind of the overcriminalization of folks, looking at some of the legislation like around choice again, we had a member of the House pet file legislation yesterday that would track pregnant girls and try and like track them through their whole pregnancy to make sure they're not terminated. So it's just a bunch of stuff that just, I always tell my colleagues, look, are we helping to put food on the table? Are we helping people to feel safe in their communities? Or are we helping kids to learn and be able to compete not just in Tennessee, not just in America, but internationally? Like, What are we actually trying to do with this legislation? And unfortunately, because of how things are gerrymandered, people are playing to a very small majority in their districts that vote. But I always remain hopeful. This is my 11th session, my 11th one on education, my sixth one on commerce. There's going to be a big fight over Right now, our hospitals pay an assessment every year that helps support our 10-care program. They did that during the Great Recession. At this point, they're the ones that are hurting. And so kind of looking at, you know, will they actually make a real push to expand Medicaid? And then the last thing, which is going to be interesting in Tennessee, is getting rid of uh, legislation around the corporate practice of medicine. So right now, emergency room doctors, radiologists have their own companies and they contract with the hospital. The hospital cannot hire them. And so seeing that big push, I know it sounds... Kind of, oh, that's not that big of a deal, but it is because it will completely restructure how our healthcare industry functions. So, Tennessee is a tough state. I don't have to tell you all that. Everybody saw what happened with the Tennessee Three this past year. And, you know, the House continues to have these really weird rules where they limit debate, uh, they make it more difficult for people to speak. Fortunately, I'm in the Senate. It's a little different, but, you know, I don't know. I won't feel confident and calm until we have signy died. <laughs>
6: Well, leader, to say that you have your work cut out for you is an understatement. So, thank you. Tennessee is uh, very, very lucky for your leadership. And uh, with you. that, I'll pass it back to Debbie for more questions. Thanks so much, Kate. I, I think
1: I will ask one more question. I wanted to just pick up on a thread that I'm hearing from all of you, which is one of the reasons I love doing this event so much. So, one of the reasons I love working with the New Deal leaders so much is you know, you're all talking about making government work and solving problems. And I do think that that you know that is the way we fix. In my opinion, the way we fix what's ailing our democracy is to show people the government can work, the government can solve problems, whether it's, you know, a more narrow thing, Leader rock bar, you were just talking about in Tennessee, or, you know, or broadly about, you know, affordable housing or women's right to choose or whatever it is. And I'm just curious if you all wanted to just touch briefly on maybe an example or two of how you've been able to use some of that federal, those federal dollars or what you're looking forward to spending those federal dollars on in your states this, this session.
5: Absolutely. Thanks to the American Rescue Plan dollars, we were able to do a lot of mobilization during the pandemic and afterwards. Some of those federal funds went to very important programs like violence reduction grants, violence prevention grants to support organizations that do mentoring with youth and young adults, organizations that do workforce training and development, organizations that are educating people on the pandemic and and safety health measures. Additionally, we were able to get ourselves to a better financial situation because of the several billion dollars. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris worked so hard in Congress to get to our states. For the first time in many years, we have a surplus in our rainy day fund uh, to a tune of $6 billion. That would have never happened if we did not get several billion federal dollars through the American Rescue Plan funding. And I'll just remind everybody that when we sadly had a portion of 95, Interstate 95 collapse, that thanks to President Biden's leadership, we were able to get that highway restored, which is a major, it's a major artillery, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, like all connects through that artillery of 95, was restored in 12 days. And that was because federal government was able to send money to our Pennsylvania Department of Transportation to get that that work started immediately.
1: That's amazing. Thanks for reminding us about that. And what was really an amazing show of what government can do if <laughs> you put your mind to it. And both the federal government, you all, and the governor just did an amazing job there. Senator Akbari, anything you wanted to just flag in terms of how federal funds have been used, or or things you yeah. were hoping that they would be used for? Anything else you want to
4: add in Tennessee? Well, for sure, myself and Representative Harold Love were put on – we are the only Democrats put on the task force to kind of handle the ARPA funds. I think it gave us an opportunity to really infuse a significant amount of cash in our education system. Of course, we're running out of that. Obviously, the Transportation Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act really helped us in Tennessee because we solely rely on our gas tax to fund our roads and bridges. I will say this, though, just it's extremely, extremely ironic that – for a state that relies so heavily on federal funding, our federally elected officials did not vote for these programs that really are transformative in Tennessee. Yeah.
1: Thank you for that. This is such a important thing to kind of start to set the, you know, think about what's going to be happening over the next few months to hear from all of you about the really exciting and amazing things you're going to be working on in your states. So we will be watching it. I know that SDAF will also be watching and tracking what's happening. We hope to come back together at the end of the sessions and do a little wrap up of what was able to happen. Please check out our website, newdealleaders.org and thenewdealforum.org. We'll be promoting many of the things that the leaders were talking about here as they're making their way through the legislature and in other states across the country and i want to give a huge thanks to kate and sdaf again for co-hosting with us kate i'll give you the last word if you want to put a plug in for where people can track what you're
6: doing as well yes thank you so much debbie and thank you new deal and to all of leaders this is wonderful to be part of please visit our website as well StateDemocracyActionFund.org. that is where we track all the legislation key issues in key states across the country would love for you to check that out and thank you again it's great to be part of this An
0: Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.